0: So, Anatoly, when was the last time you were thinking about how many things you can do with just your phone? Actually, quite recently I was stopped by traffic police. And
1: I was able to manage everything with just a phone in my hand. And that was the time I thought,
0: like, the future is now. Oh, really? I actually have to admit that a lot of new products appear in market every day. And I'm thinking that still the potential is not fully opened and we haven't reached our plateau here. Well, uh, I totally agree. I was following
1: the Apple presentations, uh, one of which will happen later today, by the way, and
0: every time I'm amazed how little by little they are changing the world. I mean, in terms of Apple, it's actually easy to them, right? I mean, they have already established markets, market, so they can just introduce whatever they want, and users will buy it. I mean, while our today's guests was able to make a change to the market even against their customer's opinion by just sticking to his vision. So, please, guys, welcome our today's guests, CEO of Sarafu and Azampei, of Ahmad.
2: Hi, Firoz. How are you? Hey, guys. Hey, Max. Hey, Anatoly. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Great. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Very happy to be here.
0: So, diving to the start of our podcast, I mean just, and finishing about Apple. In 2014, uh, Apple actually introduced their Apple Pay, so they made it on the light market, because they released Apple Pay after three years after Google launched the Google Wallet, and it was easier for them, so they knew where should they move. Like, how it was you, what was the market setup when you decided to launch Raffu?
2: Yeah, so I think it's it's very different markets between Apple and what we're doing with Sarafu, but uh, I guess innovation is always somewhat similar. Uh, When we decided to launch Sarafu, really what we were looking at is a lot of inefficiencies and and lack of transparency in the market. So Sarafu is is a B2B e-commerce app that's based in in Tanzania, at least we're operating primarily in Dar es Salaam, the main city in Tanzania. And in markets like this in in Sub-Saharan Africa, you see a lot of um informal uh economic activity where people are uh, exchanging goods and transacting by by cash and so that's uh that results in a lot of inefficiency and a lot of lack of transparency and so we saw an opportunity to digitize payments for a big subset of relatively ignored small businesses and in doing so create some value for them and also uh create an interesting business so that's that's how we got started so it wasn't
0: much similar products, kind of yours when you decided to launch Sarafu. and what maybe helped you to identify and to clarify the concept.
2: Uh yeah, so how we verified the concept, I, I can give you a quick, uh, you know, a quick use case. Um, you know, customers that we are currently serving on serafu which is the the e-commerce app. Previously, what they would do is they would, uh, if they needed to to procure supplies. These are shops that might be selling you know your everyday goods like like soda, juice, or water, things like that. And when they would get their supplies, they would be calling a distributor, and that distributor would be calling on a phone. They'd try to get a a price quote from them on the phone. They'd ask about inventory. Then the delivery process would be, uh, when are you gonna come by? Uh, If they didn't come by, they'd have to call them back on the phone. They might be on the way. They might be stuck in traffic. They might say I'm around the corner. So, or other times they might simply have to shut down their shop and go to the marketplace and go get whatever supplies they need. So it was a cumbersome process. So what we saw was an opportunity to, to create a, a digital version of that ordering process that uh, gave a lot more power to the small shop owner to uh, purchase those supplies on a phone. And then what we did is we aggregated all those uh, supplies in a warehouse and we delivered them to the um, shop owner at his doorstep. So basically what we did is we did all the work and in and, and exchange we became kind of this larger wholesale distributor but ultimately for us, the core of it was on the payment side because um, most payments in this part of the world still happen in cash. And when you have cash payments, there's a lot of opportunity for, um, you know, uh, problems to come into the into the equation. And by making the payment process digital, what we did was eliminate a lot of those hassles uh, that people were experiencing.
0: I think we obviously know that it's hard launching a new brand and having no users at so what was the process of, for you of getting your users, and how you made them to trust you?
2: Yeah, the first, so so obviously, people behavior change is very difficult to do in markets, and you know, human beings are creatures of habit. So, you know, if you go to a classroom every day, uh, you know, ten days in a row, most likely you'll end up sitting in the same chair for most of those ten days. So, people like to have their habits. Now, people were habituated into paying with cash on delivery. Um, And what we had to do is change that that perception. So one of the things that happened was when we came with the idea originally to these customers, um, almost all of them didn't want to order on an app. Many of them didn't have smartphones and the ones that did have smartphones, they didn't know how to use the smartphone. So they might've used a smartphone as almost like basically for WhatsApp calls, but outside of that, they didn't really use a smartphone. So there was a lot of resistance. And so um, what they wanted instead was to have us open a call center and have people place calls on a phone. We send them the products and then they pay cash the essentially replicating exactly what they have been doing all this time, except we might be giving them a little bit better price. So what we did is we decided to totally ignore what they were asking for. We did the exact opposite of what they wanted, which is we forced them in order to get the benefits that we had created otherwise so we had good pricing, we had on-time delivery, we had all these benefits that were not associated with using the app per se. But we said, in order to get those benefits, you must use the app, you must place the order on the app. And uh, what happened was, instead of spending all this money on a call center to take calls and orders, um, we ended up spending a little bit money on a sales team to go and train people how to use the app. So they went into the market, they said, this is how you order, if you wanna get this price, if you wanna get this type of service, you have to go and download this app and you know, this is how you, this is how you use it. And so um, over time, actually initially the uptake wasn't even there because what would happen is the customer would say, okay, fine, I'll do it. And they did it with the, with the sales agent. And then the next day they need to place another order. They call the sales agent and say, hey, log into my account and place this order for me. And the sales agents would do it, right? Even though we would kind of tell them not to do it, they would still do it because that's just, you know, that's what they were doing. So um, there was that much resistance, right? Even after being trained, they'd still rather have someone place the order for them. Uh, And then what happened over time is they started to get more comfortable with it and they started to realize that, you know, there are other things I can do with this app that I couldn't do otherwise. So one of the things that they did was they started placing orders at night because normally all these shops would place orders between say 9 a.m. and 2 p.m. when typical business hours. And that's when you can get someone on the phone, right? But now all of a sudden they have this application on their phone and it's nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. And we start to see all these orders start coming in at these later hours. And that's because the customer stopped trying to do what it is they wanted to do and started to realize that, hey, there's a new world here. This thing can work when there's nobody on the other side and I can place my order. And then they got it the first thing in the morning the next day, which is actually what they wanted, right? They want their products at the beginning of the day when the customers are starting to come in. So what we saw was a a, a shift in behavior from a total resistance to using the app and forcing the sales agents to place the orders to a situation where now they were starting to use the benefits of the app uh, and started to understand that, hey, this technology can actually do something for me that I, I didn't realize. So really what it was about for us was we knew that once they experienced the potential of the technology, they would like it but the resistance was just experiencing it. So we put them in a situation where they experienced it for themselves and then we started to see, you know, the customers starting to change in their behavior and they started to, and now we don't get any calls from the sales agents, right? They don't call sales agents. In fact, now new customers buy smartphones to use our service, right? And on top of that, you know, th- our, our sales agents don't have to place those orders for them anymore. So it took about, eight to 12 months really to start to see that shift happen. But now uh, I would say half our orders are placed after 8 p.m. at night, as opposed to 90% of them being placed between 9 a.m. and, and 1 p.m. before. So a new world of possibilities.
0: Were you expecting that user behavior will change in that way? Or maybe there was something that just like surprised here?
2: So I think this is what it comes down to between balancing uh, the customer's uh, needs or what they want and your vision for what you think you can do and um, You know interestingly enough. Uh, I was just reading the other day uh, You know Jeff Bezos he writes a letter to shareholders every year and every year I think I, I haven't read the, very many of them I read a couple of them, but I know he keeps repeating this Nobody actually asked him for Amazon Prime No customer came to him and said hey, it would be great if you did two-day free delivery you packaged Amazon video with it you gave me uh, for $90 a year, $110 a year, whatever it is, uh, nobody asked him, right? He, he did it, right? And actually Amazon Prime has fundamentally changed retail in America, probably in the world, right? Because now the expectation is when you order something online, you're gonna get it within two days, okay? So nobody asked him for Amazon Prime, he did it, and now it's perhaps the biggest fundamental shift in uh, retail consumer purchase in America in, in maybe in the last 30 years. So it's the same situation for us, right? Nobody asked us, nobody came to us and said, it would be really great if we could order these products on a smartphone. But we knew where we went ahead, we had a vision, right? We want to transform that informal marketplace, but we also wanna create a, a more broader digital marketplace that other companies can plug into as well. And we knew that that would not be possible with a call center as the core of our sales engine, right? We knew it had to be done digitally. And so in order for it to be done digitally, we had to basically uh, push the push the idea out and get the customers to start buying in And uh, you know you, you have to use different incentives and and, and make sure people are um, getting ultimately their need is products right As long as they were getting products at the price they want at the time they want, then we were solving that problem and then we, we realized that other things would start to, to gel after that. Okay, and
1: uh, you have uh, this product running for uh, over two years now. What Mm -hmm. is the process of adding new features to the product, uh, to the software right now? Do you do customer interviews, do you collect data?
2: Yeah, so so we do, we we, we do Canvas customers. We do look at some of the other features that might be helpful for them. Like one one feature that I know we're looking at building in is uh, selecting time of day for delivery. So if they're typically in their shops at one time versus another time, then each customer could create that preference and we could then use the, the, the logistics uh, algorithms to optimize the delivery time. Uh, so, we, so I think some of those incremental changes, absolutely, you need to listen to what your customers need. Uh, another function that we added recently was a credit feature so that they could uh, buy certain products on supplier credit. And, you know, if you use the app enough, we have enough history on you to make sure that that's something that we can do. So these features, I think you add those incremental ones. I think the, the, the kind of seismic shift changes, those need to be vision based. So it's a balance between the two. I think, um, you know, uh, Clayton Christian had that book, um, The Innovator's Dilemma, right, in which he talked about uh, the disruptive changes versus the incremental changes. And typically, most companies are good at incremental changes and not that great at uh, disruptive ones because the skill sets for one are not the same as the skill sets for the other. So I think as, as as someone who's in charge of product management or someone who's guiding the company, it's really important to know the distinction between those two types of changes and when you need to stick to your vision and when you need to really get feedback from your customer. Uh, as far as I understand,
1: the first uh, initial uh, questioning the people, what they want, uh, was completely opposite from uh, what was your vision so how uh, to find a balance between the vision and the data because uh, if you were purely relying on uh, people's opinion you wouldn't be able to reach uh, the product
2: yeah good good question uh and i think this comes back to having a balance between i mean first of all you need to understand your vision where you need to go right so where are you what do you want to show your customers that's different than what they already do what is differentiating you in the market? I think you have to answer those questions for yourself. And then, then you need to map out, you need to look and see where it is that your company is headed. And if you are making changes based on what the customer is saying that doesn't put you in the direction of where you're headed, then you're making a mistake, right? So I, I think you don't ever compromise on your vision in terms of um, where you think you can make the, the big, biggest impact and the biggest change for your customers. Uh, And where you, where those requests align with that vision is where I think you can really start to look at, okay, these are things that, these are features that we can, we can look at adding and and building out. And do you think
1: vision uh, could be adjusted over the time or
2: uh, you should stick to your initial idea? I mean, mission and vision—it's sometimes hard to tell this, this distinction. But I think your mission should always stay the same. I think your vision can change based on circumstance. You know, um, it's uh, there's so many instances in history where uh, companies—I I, think—you um, know, United started as a, United Airlines started as a cargo carrier and turned into a, a people carrier. Um, you know, uh, I think FedEx um, expanded well beyond what its initial thoughts were. So I. I I think you should never limit yourself. So there's always, as opportunities come, take advantage. Um, but um, at the same time, you know, uh, for us, at least in the market that we're operating, um, for me, the vision is clear, right? We, we, we know that these uh, emerging market countries will end up looking like something in the future. So for us, it's a question of bridging that gap. How are we going to participate in bridging the gap between where things will be in the future because everywhere in the world it's it's heading towards that, right? Um, and so you know that these countries will go there. How are you going to play a role in that? That's, that's where for us that's, that's the interesting thing.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, your uh, idea is that uh, vision should be reviewed uh, eventually based on the environment circumstances? Or you think uh, there should be some a uh, period of time when you uh, still have to get back and review your vision.
2: Yeah, I think you're always reviewing. I mean, I think technology changes vision, really, uh, okay? So, for example, like in a place like Africa, let's say all of a sudden cryptocurrency becomes widely adopted in, in, in a place like Africa. Who knows? Most like unlikely because of the regulatory requirements, but let's say it happens. Well, that, that doesn't mean I stick with the way I'm running my payments right the way they are now. I definitely have to adjust and maybe cryptocurrency creates a series of opportunities that I didn't see before or were not available before. So I, I think technology absolutely can adjust your vision and I think this is why anybody who's in a in a leadership position in terms of either product or a company, a startup, uh, especially in the technology space, needs to just be constantly consuming information around the world like where are things headed what's the new thing you know who's doing what um, and where's the money going um, and then adjust accordingly or else uh, you know things move very quickly these days even in these these emerging market countries where it's sometimes very difficult to implement stuff um, things can change very quickly
1: and you mentioned cryptocurrencies uh, and it gets me to my next question how detailed do you think the vision should be? Because we may say like uh, person have to uh, be able to pay online without cash transaction. And that already involves uh, on all uh, credit card payments as well as uh, cryptocurrency payments. But uh, right. should your vision include those cryptocurrency things uh, right away or not? Or it has to be like more abstract?
2: I would say the Payment method or the payment mode is more like a tactic. I would say the vision for me, like if I look at what we're doing with our companies, Azam Pay and Sarafu, I would say uh, creating uh, digital commerce commerce experiences where they previously were analog is kind of our vision. And uh, how that happens, whether it be through crypto, whether it be through credit, or whether it be through mobile money. I mean, mobile money is way more higher adoption in this part of the world. So that's more of the, the tactic. Um, and then, you know, like I, I, I'll give you an example of uh, a kind of the way the vision would inform your thinking. So uh, instead of credit cards, which you typically use in say Europe and US in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, you use mobile money, it's essentially use your mobile phones to make payments and your, your money actually sits on the phone uh, in a way. It's, it's in a bank account, but it's in a trust account that's associated with your phone, okay? So what's, and it's been very successful, right? So M-Pesa, if you've heard of M-Pesa, it's it's one of the most successful mobile money companies in the world. And it's expanded, it's got a, in Kenya, it's got a monopoly position, it's got presence all over East Africa. Where I see mobile money uh, primarily focusing is on uh, transactions. So they're moving money from one place to another. So you need to send money to your mother, you need to pay for something, uh, uh, you know, uh, like a, a bill payment or something, electricity, stuff like that. That's where it's being used. Where it's not being used uh, is in facilitating trust between buyer and seller, okay? So if you look at a credit card, for example, I can use a credit card on a website, and if that website, say, commits some sort of fraud or they don't send me the product that uh, they promised me, I can go to the credit card company and I can say, hey, I bought this with your credit card, you have to go resolve this issue, I'm not paying that money. And the credit card company is happy to manage fraud because that's part of their business. But in mobile money, actually, there's none of that infrastructure, okay? It's basically, you send the money, it moves in one direction, and once it gets there, it's very difficult to come back. Even reversals is, is a little bit difficult. So, uh, for me, the vision would be, how do you adjust that infrastructure to facilitate commerce? So, for example, if I want to rent a car, okay? I can rent a car with a credit card because it has a credit score on me, and it has a, you know, it can go recover the funds if I damage the car, et cetera, et cetera. But, with a mobile money account, I cannot rent a credit card because I would need the full amount of that car to cover the risk of that. I could simply just steal the car, right? and there's no way to track me down. So this is where I'm, I'm, I'm saying, the vision is facility comp, uh, commerce, and then the tactic would be, well, how do you modify the payment network so that it does account for this risk, so that it does cover the uh, concerns of the merchant in a way where they can use digital to then um, address that transaction. So that's w- where I see this balance coming in. Is uh, like you said, a broader vision, and then what are the tactics, and how do you make those uh, facilitate that broader vision?
0: So we can say that technologies are just the tools to easy implement what we
2: You hit the nail on the head there, Max. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, all right, all right, uh, and uh, probably any last questions for, for me? Uh, what would you recommend to read to our uh, listeners in order to manage their vision and in order to find the balance between the vision and the data?
2: Yeah, actually, you know, I mentioned this book earlier in the talk. There's a book called uh, The Innovator's Dilemma. That's one of the classic ones. Uh, it was written by a Harvard Business School professor. I think if you're looking at going into a innovative space that could potentially be disruptive or potentially be a kind of order magnitude change over what you're do, what other people are doing, it's absolutely a, a really helpful book to 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 organize your thoughts. And in more specific, even that last chapter where it summarizes all the issues, like. Why do companies fail? Why do they not innovate, even though they're trying to and things like that? So it's both for for companies that are startups, but as well as someone might be working in a bigger business, trying to understand what they need to do to innovate. Um, The other book. So we we, we, in our company, we do read books every now and then to keep our senior team kind of thinking. One is uh, there's a book that we're reading right now on Amazon um you know um that's basically a history of, of amazon.com and we're in e-commerce too so that's that's a helpful one for me but those are two that i would i would definitely recommend um to to check out okay thank you yeah fascinating
0: recommendation so i think it can be it for today guys i just have to mention that today we discussed a fascinating case about serafu mm-hmm. today we had furious who actually made a fantastic job about digitalization in the market and teaching people how to use smartphone and how to make smartphone a better tool to make your life
2: easier and smoother? Too kind, Max. You're too kind. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Chris. Uh, totally, thanks, Max. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys for your excellent questions and your your time. I, I'm I had a fun time. I had a fun time with you.